wake up and smell the coffee. Don't you love that saying? <laughs> now, how many of you, this is, you can totally participate here. How many of you wake up with caffeine on a regular basis? How many of you wake up with caffeine on a regular basis? Yeah, the majority of us. Some of you, I don't know why you're not raising your hand. Maybe you really don't. Um, how many of you, now this is a contest. How many of you wake up to more than one cup of caffeine? That's anywhere between wake up to noon. More than one cup of caffeine. Okay, how many are more than four? How many are more than six? <laughs> we have a winner. Um, now, mind you, when I say cup, I don't mean mugs. Most of our mugs are about two cups with the coffee. So right there, you're blowing past one cup. Eight ounces is a cup. So maybe most of us are two cups in the morning. Here's my point, though. We often need some sort of a stimulant because when we wake up, the world is not always bowing before us, ready to make everything easy. Nor is it saying, oh, I understand you're a little slow right now. I'll wait. I'm here all day. It usually just hits us hard and we got to get moving. So we tend to go to the coffee maker to wake up. The Psalms understand that we need to wake up, that we are not naturally familiar with the language of prayer and praise that God has us speaking with him. In fact, we grow up in a dialect that is completely different than prayer and praise. The dialect of this world is often accusing, it's blaming, it's criticizing, it's demanding, and it's full of explicatives. It's full of words and things that aren't mirroring prayer and praise. So we must wake up. We must learn how to enter into the world of the Psalms because we don't roll our soul out of bed naturally attuned to what these prayers are doing. We must practice it. So here's what is going to happen. Here's what's... Okay. Oh, uh-oh. I bumped something. Okay. Oh. We good? Okay. Here's what's going to happen. I'll make sure I don't touch that. Here's what's going to happen. In Psalm 1 and 2, both of them are going to help us to wake up to the world and the language of prayer and praise. Think of them as two cups of coffee. And if you need more than that, you can go through them more than once. Psalm 1 is cup number 1, and it says, here is how you wake up to prayer and praise. Psalm 2 says, all right, now that you're semi-awake, here is another cup to help you wake up to prayer and praise. All right. So we're going to, this week, we're going to do Psalm 1. It's going to tell us how to wake up. And Psalm 2 next week is going to tell us why we should wake up. Both of them are going to wake us up. All right, let's do this. Cup of coffee, number one. How do we wake up to prayer and praise? Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates 
day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. How do we enter into this world of prayer and praise? I believe we want to live a life of significance, but we also don't want to live a life that's constricted to one path. If we had it our way, we would find this man, this way of life that prospers like the tree here, while having the freedom to choose the different paths that we want when we want them. We fear ultimately to commit our life or to tie ourselves down to one single way when we know that that's going to cause sacrifice. It's going to take effort. It's going to take my grit to devote myself to one way. And then we fear that in the end, what if it wasn't worth it? What if everybody else who does whatever they want, whenever they want, were right? And I suffered while they had fun and they were right in the end. Deep down inside, we want to follow God's path mostly, but allow a couple of little detours or turnouts along the way where we can sort of have some me time in the worst possible sense. So what we want to believe is that we can simply drift through life and all of the character and virtue and salvation of God will just sort of naturally and organically without effort grow in our lives. If we just drift through life, but we go to church or we read our Bible on occasion, but for the most part, we just kind of, we don't have a game plan. We just kind of go with the flow. I, I will finally, I'll eventually turn out right in the end. God will see to it. That is inside most of our beliefs. And this psalm cautions so strongly against thinking we can just drift through life. Notice how specifically it aims at this. Look at verse 1, when it told us that the blessed man is um, not the one who walks in the counsel of the wicked. Okay? So, walking in the counsel of the wicked. That means you're getting advice from people and you're walking that way. Then, it says, notice this progression. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners... So you're walking on their counsel. Now you're standing in their way. You're taking a stand for something. At first it was just, oh, I'll listen to what you have to say. I'll walk with you. Now you're standing for it. You're standing for something like, I like this. And then last line of verse one, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So first you're kind of walking along, just getting an experience and you're standing for part of it. And now you're full on seated in the seat of power in this path. There's a progression, walking, standing, sitting. But I would beg you to look at that not as a progression, but as a regression. 
he is not just walking, standing, and sitting. He goes from walking to standing to sitting. And also, he's no longer mobile. He's becoming more and more passive. He cannot move through life and through the world. He's becoming more and more stuck, tied down, a prisoner to this seat that he thought was going to give him everything he wants. Now, if you want to do this for fun, read the book of Ephesians, and you'll notice that all three of those postures are prevalent in the book. Ephesians begins by telling us in chapter 2 that we are seated with Christ. It then goes on to say, walk worthy of the calling which you've received, and then concludes by saying, stand therefore in the armor of God. Ephesians doesn't say, well... You'll start by sitting, then you'll be walking, then you'll be standing. Ephesians says you are doing all of those at once. You are a free being, seated in a place of power, walking in a place of purity, and standing in a place of security. But here, this person is so-called progressing in this way. He's, he's the person who's just drifting. If you don't have a plan in life, if we don't decide to commit ourselves to the way of Christ, we will be like this person. I'm just walking along and hearing what they have to say. Well, if you just drift, that walk will turn into a stand. No, I'm for this. And then it'll eventually be, I am going to totally sit my life in this. That's what drifting leads you to. Notice also in verse 4, that the wicked are not like the man who's like a tree that's rooted. Verse 4 says, the wicked are not like that, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. You want to talk about drifting. Think of a wilted leaf in autumn. It has absolutely no grounding. The wind comes and that leaf blows wherever the wind dictates it to go. That's the image here in verse 4. Now, that's that's a Twin Peaks, Lake Arrowhead, Crestline sort of image, right? The oak leaf. They would have related more to chaff, which is very similar. So when you would have harvesting season, you would take all the grains in. And in the grain was the good part. Um, the, the grain had chaff on the outside. It's like a husk. Think of like a peanut shell. And on the inside was the actual grain, the wheat berry. And that's what you wanted. That's where the nutrition was. That's where you could get your food just like the peanut inside the shell. So what you'd have to do when you gather your harvest is it wasn't edible as was. You had to take the husk off of the grain. And when the husk was taken off, that was called the chaff. So you would do this a couple of ways. You would crush it. You would sometimes put children on a sled and you would you would drag them or with an animal, drag them over all the grains and they would separate the husk from the wheat, the chaff from the wheat. Or you would also, um, you'd throw it up into the air on a windy day, and guess what would happen? The wheat would come down on the blanket, and the chaff would be taken away by the wind. See, the point of chaff is that it has no substance. It doesn't choose where it goes. Once it's removed from its origin, the wind dictates where it goes. You think you can just drift through life and say, oh no, as long as I kind of keep close to God, I'll be fine. The psalmist says, careful, we need a wake-up call if we want to learn the language of prayer and praise. You're not just going to drift into it. 
And then notice in verse 5 and 6, that graphic image of chaff just being dictated by the wind. The verse 5, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That's ironic. Back in verse 1, they thought they were standing in the right way. We got this together. Then all of a sudden, in the end, they're not going to be able to stand. Their footing is not solid. There's no root. Nor sinners stand in the congregation of the righteous. Now, watch the subtlety of verse 6. The Psalms are poems, okay? They're poems that are prayed or sung. Poetry is meant to pack the most meaning in its fewest amount of words possible. Watch the beautiful subtlety of verse 6. Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What is so cool about those first two lines? Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Yahweh's not mentioned in the second line. Because the way of the wicked haven't allowed him in their life. This just this, this beautiful little subtle omission says so much. The way of the righteous will flourish because they've stuck, they've clung to Yahweh. But the way of the wicked, yeah, they'll perish. There's no mention of Yahweh in their path. This is what simply drifting looks like. The winds of change, the winds of anxiety, the winds of pressure and stress, the winds of I want to belong or I want to fit in or I just want to have a little bit of, I don't know, I'm feeling unfulfilled. Maybe this will give it to me. Those winds will swirl and sooner or later you will find yourself detached and fluttering about. That's what drifting looks like. No aim, no direction, no control. And the Psalms say, wake up and smell the coffee. The world has lied to you long enough. So here, here, have this good cup of joe right here. Psalm 1 says, smell this, feel the caffeine enter you, and look that God is inviting you to a different way. He wants you to speak a different language, to experience prayer and praise. Okay, we see that psalm, but how do we? How do we wake up to prayer and praise? Every time I'm walking around the world, I feel like I just want to complain. I don't want to praise. I want to criticize. I want to be accusing and blaming and criticizing and demanding everything and everyone and everywhere. And if you don't want to do that, you hear it all the time. And it's so easy to parrot what you hear, especially when you're drifting. So we're saying, Psalm, how do we wake up to prayer and praise? How do we wake up to this alternative way of living, speaking, thinking? The answer is right there in verse 2. And so this first cup of coffee waking us up to this world wants to show us that the first way to wake up to prayer and praise is to delight in the law of Yahweh and on his law meditate day and night. Now that word law, if we're used to Paul and reading the New Testament, sounds so, it may not sound pleasant to you, especially when the laws right now are very restrictive in our world. The word law here is Torah. That's the first five books of Moses. It's the, it's, it really literally means in the Hebrew, it means instruction and teaching. It's saying 
the Torah of God says, look, if you want to go this way, then listen to my Torah. It will instruct you and guide you in that way. In other words, if you don't want to drift, if you don't want to be a victim to the winds that swirl around us, you need to be pierced through with the Torah of God, the instruction, the guidance. And here's what's cool. According to Eugene Peterson, who is actually a Hebrew scholar, he says that the word Torah comes from a Hebrew verb, yara. Torah, yara. Yara is a word that means to cast something so as to hit its mark. As in a spear. You throw a spear and intend to hit its mark. The Torah is God's spear intended to hit us in the heart. And whereas sin is missing the mark, Yara is hitting the mark. And God's Torah is the Yara of God. His instruction hits its mark. It hits us where we need it. And it pierces us. And sometimes we don't like it. We're like, oh, that one hurt. But then we realize that what it's done is it's staked us into the ground. It's staked us into his path, into his way. It's given us the discipline, the instruction, the guidance necessary so that we don't become mindless drifters. On his law, so we talked about law, the Torah, hitting its mark. But on this, we meditate day and night. That word meditate is Hagah. A lot of ahs in Hebrew if you've never noticed that. Torah, Yara, Hagah. Um, Hagah does mean meditate. That's a good translation. A, ba- a poorer translation would be ponder. And I'll show you why in a moment. The word meditate is kind of scary sometimes. Because back in the Jesus movement, there was an alternative alternative movement, right? Well, Jesus movement was an alternative movement to the uh, hippie movement, right? And there's a lot of Eastern mysticism that kind of crept in with that. And that's making a major comeback today. Uh, a lot of celebrities and a lot of world leaders and a lot of organizations are encouraging meditation and mindfulness and awareness practices and all of these things. Um, and so we... Christians can tend to be like, ooh, where's this coming from? It's clearly not coming from us, because we didn't. It's them, of course. And so we say, ah, of course, Buddhism. And a lot of the teachers of meditation are very open about the fact, yep, Buddhism teaches this beautifully. Buddhism is a pathway to peace and mindfulness, and, and it's all praise and blah, blah, blah. And so as a result we can understandably say, ooh, meditation, that's a that's a Buddhist thing. Yes, the way it is often taught is a Buddhist thing. Let's talk about that. Because here we have very clearly, the Bible says, we need to meditate on the Bible. So what's going on here? Well, typically, the kind of meditation that a Christian does not accept is the Eastern form, which basically says, You empty your mind. You empty your mind. You try to become one with all things by emptying your mind of all things so that you are now one with the great cosmic thing. The danger is that we don't need more mindless people. We don't need more empty 
hard-headed people. And I'm not at all trying to take a stab and saying people that meditate this way are dumb and empty-headed. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that this is not going far enough. Like most false religions, they have a glimmer of truth, but they don't take the truth to its fullest consequence. For example, the Greeks. The Greeks taught that the gods became humans. That they could become humans and dwell among us. So why is Christianity different? Because Christianity took that a step further. It said, yeah, yeah, no, God didn't just come be with us. God became one of us in such a fundamental way that he suffered as one of us. He died as one of us. There's no human experience that Jesus in human flesh did not experience. And he became one of us to bring us to become like he is. The son of God, C.S. Lewis famous saying, the son of God became a man so that men can become sons of God. And of course, women. That's taking it to its fullest conclusion. Resurrection. Oh, a lot of ancient paganism believed the gods came back from the dead. What made Jesus different? That his resurrection was not just coming back to the life he had. It was coming back in a new kind of life. The very life that God's going to pour out in the future when he returns. This is a glimmer, not just of the future that's to come, but the future that we will all become, that we will all resurrect like he is. That is something that paganism has never taught. And so too with meditation. Christianity says, yes, yes, we need to meditate. But we don't just empty our minds. We fill our minds with, read verse 2, what do we fill our minds with? The law of Yahweh, the Torah of Yahweh. This is going further and it's saying we, see if we just simply say I'm going to lose and let go of everything, that kind of meditation, then you're actually becoming a drifter. And many of the Eastern traditions actually teach that you basically are called to drift through life. That's not suffering, it's a mirage. It's your perspective of it. You're just drifting through life. But Christianity says, no, let's be rooted. God didn't just drift. God came with us. Let us be rooted. So we meditate on something. We fill our minds with something. It's the, it's the Torah of God. And so that's the call here. Okay, so this, this word, Hagah, means to meditate, but it also means, it can also be translated as to roar or growl. So that this meditation just isn't some mental thing. It's something that's taking us physically as well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. There's a wholeness to the human being that God is trying to call to wake up. Not just the mind, not just enlightenment, but even your sinews, your flesh, your tissues. Now, if you look, if you want to look or jot down Isaiah chapter uh, 31 Isaiah 31 verse 4 says this. Isaiah 31 4. For thus Yahweh said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. 
as a young lion growls over his prey. I bet you can't guess what Hebrew word growl is. It's Hagah. The same word meditate in Psalm 1. So read it this way. As a young lion meditates over his prey. (laughs) This is good stuff. Isn't it? Can you imagine? Have you perhaps seen planet Earth and seen the lion? When Okay, when Psalm 1 says he delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates, delight and meditate go together. The lion delights as he meditates over his food, as he gnaws all of the marrow out of the bones when all the flesh is consumed. He is delighting. He is growling. He is completely taken in by this pleasure, mind, soul if he has it, body and all. It's there. He is just... And this is where it's... Seeing it in the in in translated in Isaiah is good because sometimes wo- sounds mean more than words. To meditate is to uh, over the word of God. So this word hagah means to meditate. It means to growl, and then it also is translated as imagine, imagine. So that when you're reading God's word, it's not just some abstract, conceptual thing. Oh, yes. Yes. In the Psalms, my theology is becoming solid. We're meant to meditate. We're meant to imagine our way through the Psalms. So, we're meditating our way through them. We're growling. We're devouring our way through them. We're imagining our way through them. To wake up to the language of prayer and praise requires imagination. Because I don't always feel like praising, and I don't always feel like praying. And sometimes I'm not sure what that's supposed to look like. If I was just to roll out of bed and drift through life, there's no concept of something else that should be better. We might all say, oh, the world should be better, but we have no visual of what that should be. But the beautiful thing is that God gives us visuals. He tells us, this is what my kingdom looks like. This is how I want you to walk. And we are meant to take the scripture and to bring it inside of us in such a way that we can imagine and visualize ourselves living this out, that this becomes something that is possible, something that we can now do. And so it shows us, we're going to see psalm after psalm, this is how you praise and this is how you pray. And sometimes it doesn't look the way you think it should. Sometimes it's, God, you forsaken me. God, I want to kill my brother. Those are called psalms of pain or psalms of lament. Then other times it's, hey, let's sing. And then it's, in fact, everybody grab an instrument. Even you who can't do anything, just make a joyful noise. That's good enough. And trees, clap your hands. And mountains, start singing. And those are called the psalms of praise or celebration. So we're going to learn. Imaginative, as the psalms are very picturesque. There are two ways to praise and prayer. Two types of psalms. Either ones that say, Hey! And some that say, yay! Some that give us pain, and some that make us want to praise. That's life, isn't it? The Psalms are going to take us in this dance, this back and forth, this up and down. But we must meditate our way through it. So, 
one last thing I want to point out about this word meditate is that we are in the third part of the Old Testament. Do you remember this? We've kind of touched on this a few times. The Old Testament in the, uh, the Hebrews saw the Old Testament in three categories. There was the law, there were the prophets, and there were the writings. Well, the beginning of the law is Genesis. And Genesis is an opening account of how God's word made something happen. The power of the word. The prophets begin with Joshua. Remember that? Joshua, Judges, Kings, Samuel. Those are four prophets. Then you had Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the twelve. Four. So there were eight total. Joshua is the first of these prophets. And how does Joshua open? He's scared. He's intimidated. He's not sure he can lead this whole nation into this land where there's going to be wars and battles and other people living there. And God comes to him and says, look, Joshua, if you will meditate on my law day and night, you will prosper. And now the third part of the Hebrew scriptures, the writings open with Psalms. And what do we find? His delight is in the law of Yahweh and on his law, he meditates day and night. Friends, do you see the emphasis here? The Jewish Bible believed in the power of God's word. It opens with the power of his word creating life. It opens the prophets by saying meditate on this law. And it opens the writings by saying meditate on this law. God's word is the opening gateway to all three sections of the Old Testament. And so we see Yeah, we need to meditate on his word day and night. Why? I love that the psalm gives us reasons. You know this as parents. You knew it as a child. When you tell someone younger than you to do something, they look at you and say, why? And often we're not always thoughtful in our reasons and we just say, because I'm in charge and I said so. The Psalms understand that we're going to say, why? Why should I meditate instead of drift? The Psalm says, here's why. Three really good reasons. And if these don't convince you, we will pray for you up here afterward. Okay? (laughs) Man, if you do need prayer, please don't hesitate. Um... Here's why to meditate. First reason is in verse 1. Blessed is the man. Now, this is review for most of us. But the word blessed, where's the first place in the Bible blessed is occurred? Blessed is used. Where's the first place it occurs? Genesis chapter 1. And God blessed them. And told them to be fruitful and to multiply. The word blessed is an Edenic word, in other words. What I mean is, it is God's original vision. Heaven and earth together. This was what life is supposed to look like. It's Edenic. It's God and humans at one with one another. No separation. God's realm, our realm. There's no divorce. There's no gap. It's together. This is what made Eden delightful. Eden means delight. 
And so when it says blessed is the man, it's asking us to consider how were we meant to live? How were we created? When were we at our best? The answer is, well, right back then before we sinned, when God made everything. And so blessed is the man. How do we get there? Blessed is the man who does not drift through life, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law, he meditates. Why should we meditate? Because this will show us what we were meant to live like. As we connect with God in prayer over his word, it will show us our Edenic life. Not the cursed life that we're used to around here. But here, Christian, please don't imagine that the psalm is only saying, well, imagine what it used to be like. Let's just go back in the past. Friends, the Garden of Eden is intentionally mirrored in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, where both had trees of life, both had rivers of living water, both had precious stones in which everything was made, and both had God living in them. What is this blessed saying? It's not just saying, look back at how we used to be. It's saying so that you can live forward into what we will be. You want the blessed Edenic life? Well, you're going to get there if you continue walking God's way. Those who don't, well, yeah, the winds are going to, they're going to be too ghostly, too invisible, no substance to be able to inherit that life. But God is filling his people with Edenic life. And we're getting a piece of heaven to come in our hearts as we meditate on God's scriptures day and night. That's a pretty good reason. Now, if you think I'm making too much of the word blessed, just look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Verse 3 is telling you in five lines as much as it can, he becomes like the tree of life in Eden. This is a thriving, healthy tree. There's nothing sickly. There's nothing weak. There's nothing diseased. There's nothing, oh, I think we should cut that one down because it might come down on our house this winter. No, this is a tree that everyone admires and says, that will give food. That will give shade. That will give nests to the birds of the air. That's an Edenic tree of life. That is what meditation leads us to. One of the results, one of the reasons we should meditate on God's law day and night, we become like Edenic trees. Well, that wasn't enough reason. Second, we become rooted rather than being flittered about in the winds of change and winds of everything. It says that... um well, in verse 3, it, it doesn't say the word rooted, but we have this clear picture of it being planted by streams of water. And then later we see that the wicked in verse 4 are the opposite. They're not planted. They're uprooted. The wind's flying them away. Meditation on God's word will root us. And this is perhaps hitting most at home right now, I would think is that we feel, we can feel, very unrooted right now. Things are very uncertain. Um, I can feel a lot of worry, anxiety, angst, anger, 
Um, a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty. I can wonder too much about what will happen if the economy doesn't recover or if we're, if COVID doesn't leave and churches can never fully recover and, you know, I'm going to have to find another job or whatever. You know, like all these things can hit all of our heads in so many different ways. We need to be rooted because worry is like wind. Wondering, imagining a fearful future is like the wind. But we need to sink our feet firmly so that we can stand. And meditation on God's law, I have found personally, experientially, that my roots grow deepest when I allow my soul to imagine, growl, devour, delight, and meditate on his law. Because then suddenly, it's as if God is in me and saying to me, it's okay. Because nothing can unroot you from me. You might lose a leaf or two, but nothing can separate us from the love of God. I think a famous apostle said something about that. Romans 8. And if you want to just read a good rooted section, read Romans 8 tonight. Neither principalities, nor death, nor darkness, nor any created thing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Meditating helps us to be identically fruitful and rooted. And then third reason, if those two weren't enough, meditating on God's word makes us substantial. It makes us full. It gives us substance. The chaff has no substance. It's a husk. There once was something helpful in it, but now the good part's been taken out and the husk is left to drift away. But the meditator on God's word, the soul becomes solid. The life is full of character. There's something sharp and tangible. There's something strong and solid. C.S. Lewis has an imaginative portrayal of this in his book called The Great Divorce where people who've chosen to drift through life are visualized as ghosts who can see the grass through their feet. And the grass is so substantial and they're so not substantial that it hurts their feet to walk on it. But then the saints who have followed God are visualized as beings of light who are substance. And when they walk on the ground, they don't see the grass through their feet, but the ground shakes because there is substance. Or some people call it gravitas. There's a gravity to them. There's a weight to them. The weight of glory is upon them. And this is what happens when we meditate on God's law and choose not to drift anymore. When we wake up and we learn the language and life of prayer and praise, we begin to form a character and the character becomes solid and that solidity becomes something that people say, whoa, Wayne is substantial. He, I feel like he's somebody who's got a grip on life right now while everybody else has no clue what to do with their lives right now. Interestingly, when we talk about the language of prayer and praise, one of the common languages in our world is expletives, right? Now, that word can refer to cursing and cussing, and often is used that way. But you know what the actual meaning of expletive means? It means filler. An expletive is a filler word that has no meaning on its own. So sometimes you throw that into sort of fill out the sentence or fill out the meaning of what you're trying to say. It's to fill something out. 
People who don't know the language of prayer and praise tend to use a lot of expletives in their language, whether it's cussing or other things. Like, oh, you know what I did this weekend? And a lot of things to try to fill themselves out. Because there's a world of people who realize that they are not substantial. There's something ghostly and something so vulnerable about my being. And we're trying the best we can to fill ourselves out. But friends, nothing will except for meditating on God's word and allowing this to teach us, to delight us, to give us the path forward. So the psalm says, wake up and smell the world of prayer and praise by meditating on God's word because it will make you an Edenic fruitful person. It will give you roots and it will make you substantial. Well, sign me up, you say. This sounds pretty good. How do I do it? Right. The same way you drink coffee. Now, some people gulp coffee. They must wait till it's no longer hot because I don't know how else you can drink that scalding stuff. Some people chug it. You're clearly not delighting in it. Let's just say that. It's a, ne- it's a necessity. Oh, I gotta get this done. Gulp. The way that people who delight in their drinks drink is by sipping. When you sit down with coffee or with tea, well, first of all, you're likely you're you're likely you're going to sit down. It's usually not something you're doing on the run unless you're just trying to get fuel in. We sip, we sip the hot liquid. That's how we meditate. We sip the scriptures. S. We read the scriptures slowly. It's not a race. I know the Bible app has its reading plans and it wants to give you streaks for how many days in a row you've done it. And if you're doing a one-year Bible, you're like, that's quite a lot of reading I got to do because school or work or the grandkids are waiting for, like, you know, I got 10 minutes to get this done and I know how that can be, but we're supposed to read, to meditate, you're supposed to read slowly. You let the words read you. It's not something to accomplish. It's something to let unfold. And when you read slowly, you begin to notice things like you hadn't before. I mean, come on. So much in this psalm, and I'm only teaching this one way, like, you read, you get so much out of these psalms by reading them slowly. By the way, the psalms are poems, like I mentioned. And it, if it, most translations have them broken up like poems in little lines. Why? Take one line at a time. The way poetry is designed, it doesn't just have all these lines because they're just weird. <laughs> poetry is lines because it's meant to make the eye slow down. You read a line and ponder before you go to the next line. The Psalms are asking us to read slowly and let them talk to you. That's the first way to meditate. Read slowly. Sip. I. Read imaginatively. I'm not just reading to say, well, Pastor Brandon talks about the Hebrew word here. I want to look up the Hebrew word here. Great. Do that in some sort of a study. But when you're reading imaginatively, you're not worried about definitions and getting it right. You're letting the words put images in your mind and heart. And sometimes you're allowing yourself to sit with the words as you've read them slowly and you're allowing things to unfold. 
Maybe you're just going to imagine a fruitful tree. What does that look like? How am I like and unlike the tree right now in my life? Or you read Jesus driving out people in the temple. Let's visualize this. What is this like? Sipping, meditating is reading slowly and imaginatively. And then third, P. It's reading prayerfully. So I read slowly, I read imaginatively, and now I read prayerfully. So, some words have stuck out as I read slowly. Some things have really stuck out as images have come into my mind. God's played faces, people, situations in my life. Now we answer the God who has spoken. And we read prayerfully. What in this do I want to pray into my life? What in this is grabbing me? What in this has my imagination? We read slowly. We read imaginatively. We read prayerfully. Sip. That's what it means to meditate on God's word. So we can do this and wake up and enter the world of prayer and praise. Or we can continue to snooze. We can continue to drift through life and rather disastrously eventually drift to the point that we become invisible or perish as the psalm ends. I don't know about you, but it sounds so much better to take this first sip of coffee and wake up. Let's pray. Well, Father, we turn to you now because there really is no other who has for us.